welcome to the craft. It's been a couple of weeks. It's good to be back in the hot seat again. Um, I'm Carol Wood and I'll be talking about books, writing, the paranormal and magical traditions, as well as giving you seasonal recipes, craft projects and more. So Halloween is over, which makes me very sad, but I think I'll miss autumn even more. The falling of the leaves has slowed and they're beginning to turn from red, orange and gold to brown from all the rain and just natural decay. There's been multiple floods around the country from all the storms the last few weeks. Um, I've never actually seen so much rain in all my time living here. And as we begin to put pumpkins and costumes behind us and move into the dark part of the year, we need cozy things more than ever. The dark mornings and short days coupled with cold and rain can take a toll on the psyche. So now is the perfect time to begin turning inwards to nurture the body and comfort the soul. Food has always been such an important way for me to make myself feel better. And there are so many cozy recipes you can make this time of year. I made Kalkanum for Samhain, of course, and mulled cider, which is like, that was the first year I've made that. Um, I used pure apple juice and simmered it with a bit of dark rum, some lemon slices. You can use oranges if you have them, uh, cloves, nutmeg, and a cinnamon stick. Um, in the US, though, you can actually buy non-alcoholic apple cider, um, and that's made from unfiltered and unsweetened fresh apples, and it has to be used within a couple of days. So they tend to use that over there, but sadly we can't get that here. So you can either use alcoholic cider or apple juice, like I did, and I would recommend the apple juice because the cider is just kind of too sickly sweet, and it's just not exactly the right taste. Um. But like I obviously put rum in mine, so it was alcoholic that gave it kind of the alcohol and then that kind of spice flavor. But if you just wanted a virgin mulled cider, you could just use the apple juice and the other ingredients uh, to flavor it. But it does smell absolutely amazing. And when you add the rum at the end, like I just heated everything up, kind of let it boil a little bit. And then put a little bit of rum in the glass and added the cider on top of that so I didn't really heat the rum. And it just turns this gorgeous kind of dark brownie green, which sounds weird, but it's really, really good. Um, and it's the perfect drink to warm up on a on nights like these. Um, so, yeah, you can drink it anytime you like. Not, obviously not just at a Halloween because it's a really nice winter drink. And we're both vegetarians in my house, so we make Kalkanen with, say, vegetarian rashers or maybe some veggie sausages. And the Kalkanen itself is mashed potatoes. Just in case you don't know, it's mashed potatoes, sautéed or boiled savoy cabbage. Sautéed is nicer. Um, and some thinly sliced scallions simmered in some milk with a dash of nutmeg and salt and pepper. And then you just combine the three and add a lot of butter, <laughs> as much butter as you can stand. And it's just a really nice traditional Irish meal, especially for, for Samhain or Halloween. And you might even have some pumpkins lying around left over from Halloween, like I do. I love making pumpkin dishes um, because it's only a couple of weeks a year we get to eat that type of squash. And it's good to make the most of it. Um, so... I gave a recipe for pumpkin puree on the last episode and I've made some really nice pasta dishes and stuff from that. And the other day I used a small pumpkin to make roasted wedges and I put some like feta, organo and garlic in that. And I kind of served it 
butter bowl style. So with some rocket and baby spinach leaves and some couscous. And it was really, really nice. And over the top, uh, I made an apple cider vinegar and maple syrup dressing that I drizzled over the top. So it looked it looked amazing and it tasted even better. I'll put up some pictures on Instagram just so you can see it. It looks really nice. Um, and gnocchi is really nice as well with some roast pumpkin pumpkin gnocchi <laughs> sorry I almost said pubes instead of cubes um yeah it's really nice with some roast pumpkin cubes goat's cheese and sage I'm actually planning on making that this week um and then of course like you know a simple pumpkin soup with some fresh brown bread is a really nice straightforward way to enjoy it as well I saved the seeds from a couple of the pumpkins because I just, it was a shame to throw them out like, um, because you can eat them if you roast them first. So you just rinse all the stringy fleshy bits off really well, like five minutes under, under the tap in a colander and then dry them really well as well. A tea towel is better than a um, kitchen towel because it sticks to the kitchen towel because I had that problem. It was really difficult to get them off. And then when they're dry, you just toss that with some olive oil, paprika and salt and pepper and then roast them for 10 minutes in the oven at about 170 degrees Celsius. And they're just a really nice, flavorful, crispy filling snack. And you can use them as a topping on other savory dishes as well if you want a bit of crunch. Um, there's just so many ways to use pumpkin so that they don't go to waste. Uh, but say you've used all of yours for carving um, you can still just throw the remains in the compost bin and that's better than it going into landfill as well. Or you can leave them outside for animals to pick out if they're not overly moldy. And something I really want to try making this year that I hadn't really heard of before is apple butter. It's, it's a real American thing, but um, it's a preserve that can be used in sweet and savory recipes. This time of year, people often have access to a lot of apples, maybe from a neighbor's tree or just from the supermarket. There's so many apples around and apple butter is a great way to make use of them. It seems like a pretty straightforward recipe. Um, I'm not going to say it here, but it's it's pretty straightforward if you look it up. And apparently it's really nice in a toasted cheese sandwich and um, spread on toast with a cheese and cracker board. Or you can put it in cakes um, or porridge. Uh, I tried pumpkin spread last year when I was in LA. It's kind of like a pumpkin version of apple butter and that's really nice in a toasted cheese sandwich too. I really miss Trader Joe's um, over there. Their food is amazing and especially their fall range. I really wish they would come to Ireland. That would be great. Um, so, oh, I was at the Puka Festival in Mead last weekend. Uh, it was only one day. But I was really impressed at how much work went into creating such an amazing spectacle. Uh, we were supposed to do a tour of the Hill of Ward, which is Clock, otherwise known as Clockta Hill. And that's where the ritual of Samhain and Halloween began. Uh, there's evidence of massive bonfires there going back centuries. There are even earthworks going back 2000 years, they believe. And the hill was a site of ritual activity long before even the Celts arrived. So it's very, very ancient. All the fires in Ireland were extinguished on October 31st and then relit with embers from the great fire on the hill. Um, obviously, that is not 100% true. It's more like lore, but that was the idea anyway. 
But unfortunately, due to that awful crash on the M50 on Saturday, we missed the tour. Um, and that's actually the second time we've missed that tour. Uh, I think it was about eight years ago, maybe we were supposed to go as well. And it was it was dark by the time we got there and we had missed the start of it and we couldn't find the tour. And so it's like I'm not meant to go <laughs> to that hill. I don't know why. It's really weird. But I, I, I think I'll try and go back sometime. See, can I? Just explore the place by myself. Uh, the opening procession for the Puka Festival was amazing. It was really enjoyable. It was dark by then and it was just very atmospheric. And it was kind of like just a parade of every kind of Irish legend, creature and ghoul associated with sound. And it was down the main street in Trim. The huge banshee was one of my favourites. And there was five Irish wolfhounds and a Cúchulainn character and they... They're amazing because they just, they look like mythical animals to me. They're just so cool. Wolfhounds. Um, and there were multiple pukas present, of course, because it's the puka festival. And I'd never seen that costume in person before. So that was really cool. Some of them had glowing red eyes, which was kind of freaky. And we dressed up for the event, um, which had some <laughs> amusing results. I was an Irish fairy queen and Dave wore a cloak and a kind of a freaky hair mask. It could be a rabbit. It's hard to tell. It could be either. But there was a little boy. Um, he was sitting on his father's shoulders beside us. And he was terrified of the mask. The poor little thing. So afterwards then, when the main procession was gone, it was the easiest way to get back down the street was just to join in at the end. But people further down the street, like because it was kind of continuous and we were dressed in costume, they thought we were part of it. So it was really funny because all these little kids were holding out their hands to us and people were like coming up and taking pictures. And yeah, it was it was fun. Um, I, I think, I yeah, I already put some up on Instagram uh, during the week. So you've seen some of them, but it was a lot of fun. I'd love to go back again and maybe go for two nights and do some more activities. It was very rushed because it was, um, it's kind of the main part is in Trim, but then the second location is Athboy and they're about half an hour's drive apart. And then where we stayed was Killeen Castle and that was like another half an hour away. So it was, it was kind of hard to get around to all of it. Um, so the harvest market there in Trim as well, that was really cool. I thought it was actually going to be indoors and it was outdoors and it did start to rain and we had to leave. But before that, it was really cool. There was loads of like craft vendors, small businesses, food stalls, things like that. Like I got a really cool ring. Um, it's like an evil eye ring. It's really, it's really nice. Um, from a jewellery maker there. And we like, we would have stayed longer if... A, it wasn't raining, and B, we didn't have to get to Athboy for the second event. So that was an over-18s circus, which sounds weird, but it wasn't really that weird. Uh, it was the sound circus, and that was, yeah, it was, like there was a daytime one that was suitable for families, and this one was more like, they had like some burlesque and I suppose more risque costumes and stuff. And, and I, I don't know. I, it wasn't really over Aideen's, but I suppose I can understand why they said it was. Um, so the big top was kind of a small one. It was smaller than I thought it would be. And it also wasn't heated, but it it was fine. I mean, the show was so amazing. It was a really good distraction from the cold and the damp. Um, 
it was put on by a company called Broken Theatre and it was actually their f- debut show um, and it was really it was really amazing it was like a mixture of acrobats trapeze artists kind of burlesque hula hoop dancers fire handlers and jugglers and yeah the performers were just so fit and just really daring like some of the things that they were doing were terrifying honestly it was just really impressive um so if you ever get a chance to to see anything put on by broken theater i would go if i was you and then it was midnight by the time we got back to our hotel and it was also raining again so i was thinking that i would do a bit of ghost hunting up there at night time but we were just so tired that we, and it was raining that we just got lazy and went to bed <laughs> so that was it um but yeah I highly recommend the Puka Festival anyone thinking of going next year there's there's so many different things you can do up there 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 was like a lot of live music and comedy as well but we didn't go to any, any of that um yeah so now you're all, all caught up in my seven activities it's time to move on to this week's paranormal topic and this week I'm covering the Kunian ghost. Now I actually had never heard of this case before so it was really interesting to research um, and I also watched some YouTube videos about it. Um, but yeah the Kunian ghost. So the history is in 1913 Bridget Murphy and her seven children, six daughters and a son lived in a remote farmhouse in Corner Ruslan, Cunion in County Fermanagh. The house was completely surrounded by dense woodland, blocking it from view of the road. It was a harsh and desolate place to raise seven children, but by all accounts, Bridget did her best. The children's names in order of birth were James, Anne, Mary, Teresa, Bridget, Catherine and Jane Anne. Bridget's husband, Michael, had died in a freak accident <coughs> excuse me, six years previously. The 1901 census has a record saying that he died in 1907 from an injury to the head and that his son James was present at the time of death. The nature of the accident is unknown. While James is recorded as being present when his father died and he's on the 1901 census, there is no record of him on the 1911 census, which is 10 years later. And that is strange as the activity started in 1913. And he was definitely reported as being present at the time of the activity. So the trouble is reported to have begun shortly after Michael, the father, died. It started with knocking on the door and when someone would go to answer, no one was there. Heavy footsteps were heard in the hayloft, which was a room right above the main part of the house. The knocking soon spread to the doors and windows and the poltergeist definitely had rhythm because it was often heard to tap out the rhythm of songs such as the Boy in Water, an Ulster Protestant folk song. Bridget invited neighbours over to see if they would witness the strange phenomena, and it repeated itself no matter who was present. The activity intensified, resulting in plates and saucepans being thrown across the room, and the girls' beds would lift several inches off the floor. Bedsheets were also manipulated and would move and rise of their own accord, taking the shape of animals and on one memorable occasion, a person who appeared to be dying. Several priests investigated the claims, and on finding the phenomena to be genuine, were granted permission to perform two exorcisms on the house. Unfortunately for the Murphys, neither exorcism worked, and in fact, the priests themselves became ill afterwards. It was said that James, Bridget's only son and the eldest, had been performing satanic rituals from a book he found in the nearby forest. This was proved to be false, and it certainly sounds like a cliched rumour to me. 
But after this lie was circulated, Bridget had had about enough and around a year into the haunting, she took her seven children and emigrated to America. However, the poltergeist is said to have followed the unfortunate family. On the long and arduous crossing to the US, the ship was plagued with loud knockings, rappings and moanings coming from their cabin. The captain received so many complaints from other passengers that he threatened to throw the Murphys off the ship, hopefully not literally, if they didn't quieten down. They told him about the poltergeist, but he didn't believe them. The noises continued and he allowed them to stay on the ship, but everyone was exhausted by the time they reached the dock. The activity supposedly followed them to their new home and continued for some time before eventually petering out. It is rumoured that one of Bridget's daughters was so affected by the ordeal that she spent the rest of her life in a mental institution, but no evidence of this can be found. Sir Shane Leslie of the nearby Castle Leslie estate in County Monaghan was an Anglo-Irish diplomat and writer and a first cousin of Winston Churchill. He wrote a book in 1956 on the subject of the ghosts. No, sorry, on the subject of ghosts, which contained a chapter on the Cunian poltergeist. The book book is simply titled Shane Leslie's Ghost Book and there is a copy of it in special collections in UCD here. Um, I'll read an extract from it concerning what he calls the Cunian ghost. So the following is an extract from his ghost book published by Sheed and Ward, New York in 1956. The poltergeist of Cunian near Brookborough, County Fermanagh dates from 1913 to 1914. Father Hugh Benson had promised to come and investigate, but died in October 1914. It was at different times investigated by three priests, from whom I collected the following notes. Incidentally, I learned that Cardinal Moran, when Bishop of Ossory in the 70s, sent three priests to investigate two nieces of his own in Kilkenny, aged 14 and 15, who became subject to noises and obsessions. These all ceased after exorcism. In the Cunion case, Bishop McKenna of Clare decided it was diabolical, deputed Dean Keown to exercise it, but the Dean withdrew it, leaving it to the Bishop. As in the Derry Golony case and so many others, bewildered and innocent girls touching puberty became unconscious mediums, enabling mischievous forms of spirit life to manifest themselves. There was really no ghost origin dating from life except a rumour that an old pensioner had been murdered there on the day he drew his pension. This may have opened the way for the poltergeist, but the only ghost described was very unlike an old pensioner. A man had entered the house over early in the morning, and while waiting at the fire saw a ghost come down like a ball of wool in a black bag by the trap door and coach round the floor. The house had passed from Burnsides to Corrigan's to Sherry's and Murphy's under whom the troubles began. The Sherry's occupied it one night only, but kept quiet and sold it six months later. When the Miss Murphy's lay by the fireside, the pillows were torn from under their heads. A priest told me that he heard it snoring in the dark, and sitting on the bed it felt like snakes moving under him. And when a light was lit, a human bulk was seen to collapse under the sheets, and then develop a new swelling while the snoring started afresh. It showed Protestant hostility to holy water, which seemed to infuriate it, for it played back the tune of boiling water. He placed the sacred pyx, um, which, by the way, is a vessel for storing Holy Communion. So he placed the sacred pyx where there was a noise which sank underground, but still sounded from the depths. He investigated more than 50 times. It came down like the sound of straw in the air. It operated on a bed with testers in a corner where three or four young girls up to 18 slept. 
once he saw a human form raised under the sheets of an empty bed until it collapsed. He described it as like an animal moving underneath. He felt fear when it was spitting at him or lapping like a dog or escaping under him on the bed. He always addressed it as Johnny. When it was asked to play the soldier's song, the tune came in taps. Another priest described going there one night and finding a mother and two girls sleeping on pallets round the fire away from the haunted room. The moment the children returned to bed, there was a sound like a kicking horse. The bedclothes were thrown across the room. He held the children by their forehands with one hand and laid the other one over their feet. When the phenomena continued, he was convinced the children could not have produced them. At the suggestion he made that it came from a far distance, from hell, there was a big hiss. He stood with his hand on the bed and challenged it. There was clearly something like a rat moving around his hand under the clothes. He had a shock and the feeling of an eel twisting round his wrist, but no farther. It dared not touch his consecrated hand. He remained there till four in the morning. A canon of the diocese told me he went about 16 times. Once he heard a musical noise in the ceiling, he said, perhaps it will whistle. It did whistle. There was certainly an intelligence working behind it, and he was as certain of the ghost as of his being alive. It fooled us as it was contradictory and gave nothing definite about itself. Holy water was used copiously. It was vexed and fled more and more along the wall while the knocking became more pronounced. Mass was said in the kitchen, where henceforth relief and sleep became possible for the Murphys. When the children sat on a stool, the noise continued round them. When I cracked my thumb, it cracked louder. We asked for nine raps for yes, and they came. They tried it in Irish and Latin successfully. They asked, how many of us were born in County Monaghan? Answer correct. They asked, could you put the dog from under the bed? The collie came out dancing mad with fire from his eyes. A famous horse dealer invoked it in the presence of visitors from England. It answered accurately with raps how many of them had been born in Ireland. How many horse dealers present? It thumped under his chair. The first time he investigated, he left a pony trap outside. The lights were mysteriously put out and the pony was terrified. The driver said someone had passed several times in the same direction, but never returned. Later, a teacher had his bicycle lights mysteriously put out. Well, was that the end of it all? The parish priest was weak and nervous about the ghost. The clergy were divided in opinion. The old ones kept away, but the young curates leaped in where angels might fear to tread. The girls were expected to produce results every time, and did so, for two, two curates believed they had caught them in fraud when the ghost was not sounding. The girls were avoided at crochet class, for no one would sit by them. When they took refuge in neighbours' houses, it always followed them. As the parish priest would not believe them, they marched to his house, and after that he believed, for it came down his back. The canon later wrote to me that, I, that as I was writing a book on the subject, I should have all this information following. And this is the 12th of November, 1944. And this is from the canon. It was widely, widely rumoured that, that the children themselves, three of them, ranging from 9 to 13 years, were making the noises on the wood at the head and bottom of the bed. On this particular evening, there were 9 or 10 in the room, the knocking all around fairly vigorous, and although none of us there believed that the children were knocking, I suggested that two men in the room should come over and hold the hands and feet of the children so that a false rumour should be disproved. They did so. I sat on the bedstock also. 
The knocking continued as usual, but much more vigorously, for ten minutes, when suddenly the two men rushed away, saying they were being punched and pushed off the bed. They would not return. I was not pushed away from the bed, but something moved close to my back up and down the length of the bed. I was not afraid and remained for five minutes or longer. This killed the rumour that the children were making the noises. It was also rumoured that some of the family read bad books and had the black art, etc. This was quite untrue. I think it was the same night that a sheepdog belonging to the family came into the room. I put him under the bed and said something like this. Whatever is there, I would ask you if you have the power to put this dog out. Suddenly, such noises all around the bed as never were heard burst out and frightened us all, with the result that the dog rushed out, nearly knocking me down on his way. No inducement could get him freely to come into the room afterwards. Now I'm going to relate the most remarkable incident I experienced during the whole time I spent at Mrs. Murphy's. Our usual course, whether Father S and I went together or singly, was to go before the family retired. You may remember that I told you that when the first manifestations were made, the bishop, Dr. McKenna, was notified about them. He told Father S to say Mass in the house. There were three apartments in the house. He said Mass in the kitchen, which was the middle one, and as this was done at a very early period, the children could, from that time, sleep undisturbed in the kitchen. When Father S and myself visited the house, we usually had the children put in their own bed, which was in the room to the right as you entered. Sometimes the knocking, etc. would commence vigorously as soon as they would go to bed, otherwise less vigorously, perhaps very mildly or perhaps not at all. Sometimes it did not start for about an hour after they went to bed. On this particular night there was no noise in the children's room, although they had been in bed for more than an hour. The rest of us were sitting around the kitchen fire chatting when I asked James, who is the eldest child, um, unknown to the others, he was an intelligent boy of about 25 years, to get a candle and matches. We went to the other room on the ground floor where no one was sleeping. This was, this was a fairly large room, two windows with blinds drawn, a bed covered with a white quilt, also some chairs. We stood in the middle of the room in almost complete darkness and listened. For five minutes, all was silence. Suddenly, we heard the tramp diagonally across the room upstairs of something like the footfall of a fairly large dog or sheep. It continued. We listened. James said there was nothing in the room above but some chaff and a bundle of straw. The room was being used as a barn and was reached by stone steps on the outside at the gable end. Leaving James where he was, I took the candle and matches, went out, up the steps and stood at the door for a few minutes. I then walked round the room three times. The barn was as James described it. I heard or saw nothing. I returned to James who told me that the tramp of the dog had continued all the time. James then went up to the barn and I remained below. It had the same result, nothing above and the tramp of the dog heard below. Very soon after we were standing together in the middle of the room, something that I cannot describe and did not see rushed down, practically touching us and went into the earth. For the first time we were really frightened, but soon we immediately noticed that the tramping above had ceased. I then said to James that it was breaking day and to pull up the blinds. He did so. Day was dawning as it was summertime. We clearly saw the room and immediately noticed, although there was no wind blowing in the room, that the bedclothes were moving up and down fairly fast, especially in the centre of the bed. I actually went and held my hand over the bed and tested the matter for two or three minutes. 
After that, we went to the kitchen where the family, Mrs. Murphy, her two grown-up daughters, and I think Father S or possibly some neighbour were chatting. We had been absent about half an hour. We told them what had happened. They wondered, took their chairs and stools, came to the room. The movements of the bedclothes were gradually getting more pronounced, vigorous and defined. The whole thing resembled the form of a person lying diagonally across the bed in his or her death agony. The centre, where the clothes were heaving most, was where the chest would be. Soon we could hear the heavy breathing, the gurgling in the throat, the symptoms of pain. It resembled what country people would call a hard death. From the time they came from the kitchen, the whole death scene occupied ten minutes at least. Finally, the movements and death symptoms ceased and the room was silent as the grave. I only saw this scene once, but heard that there were further such manifestations later on, but I can't vouch for their truth. Soon after this scene, I was transferred from Maguire's Bridge to Fintona, but I heard afterwards that old people from the locality said that in the olden days, an occupant of the house hanged himself in that room. I cannot vouch for this. Now I come to item number three, which is as strange in its way as anything else recorded. Sometime near the end of my time as curate of Maguire's Bridge, I took it into my head that possibly other members of the family were affected, as the people said, and that possibly one of the full-grown daughters, Annie, aged about 20, or Mary, about 22 years, was affected. So I went in the middle of the day alone, saw Mrs Murphy and asked her to tell me the whole truth about the matter. She told me that Annie was affected and that it did not develop until mass had been said in the kitchen. Being a big girl, the mother said, and I agreed, that we should not let it be known publicly. The mother sent to the field where she was working. She came in. I brought Mrs Murphy and herself to the bedroom on the right, where there were so many manifestations. I told her to stretch herself out on the bed and then threw a rug over her. To my great surprise from the ceiling above the door, which led into the room from the kitchen, a peculiar rush immediately came until it reached halfway down the wall and then turned at right angles until it reached the head of the bed where the girl was and then the knocking commenced most vigorously. I asked her to rise. She arose and immediately the same rush, distinctly audible, rushed back, turned at right angles and into the ceiling. I then asked Mrs Murphy to get into the bed. She did so and there were no manifestations. I asked Annie to go again. She did so, and whatever came, came by the same route and departed as before. I tried Annie twice more with the same result, and also Mrs Murphy with a negative result. This, to my mind, was very strange indeed. Any person in the room could hear the comings and goings as distinctly as the ticking of a grandfather clock. But the noises were five times louder on this occasion. The final item is, soon after the manifestations commenced, Father, name redacted, um, was out on a sick call. He was passing Murphy's on returning and had the Blessed Sacrament with him. The noises were great around the bed that night. Father and some of the neighbours were in the room. So after lowering, lowering the light, Father took out the picks and made the sign of the cross with it over the bed unknown to the others. He had no sooner done so than all the noises imaginable were made before the evil spirits departed and did not return that night. The people in the room threw themselves on their faces and were terrified thinking Father was about to be attacked. I heard the story of the terrible noises afterwards and of what they believed was an attack on Father from some of the people who were present. They did not know he had used the picks. 
This is a summary of all my experiences. It remains to be added that the family retreated to America where they were no more troubled. The gallant clergy who made such constant efforts on their behalf seemed to have been the worst for it. One priest had a nervous breakdown, another spinal meningitis, and the third facial paralysis. No doubt matters would have been more successful if the exorcism service had been performed as the bishop wished, but it was too serious a matter to lay as a command on any member of his chapter. It was not a ghost, but a poltergeist obsessed by truly demoniacal powers. Yeah. So I think it's a very interesting story and it's really well known. So I was surprised that I hadn't heard of it. And there's, I have like a few pieces of current news about it. So in 2016, the Northern Ireland Forestry Service cut down many of the trees surrounding the house, which meant it could be viewed from the road again. They were keen for someone to potentially develop the cultural landmark. And in 2019, a local man named Peter McKinley made plans to raise £250,000 sterling to restore the early 20th century farmhouse. He wanted to restore the house to the way it was when the Murphys resided there and build a conservatory, a caretaker's cottage and some camping pods in a traditional Irish one-room style. During the day, he planned to open the house to visitors and at night he would run CCTV cameras on a live stream to check for paranormal activity. None of this transpired, unfortunately. Um, Some people say that the Catholic Church didn't want the house disturbed as it was the site of former exorcisms. But it could be there wasn't enough interest to raise funds for the project. Whatever the reason, Coonian House is falling fast into a state of total disrepair. One of the chimneys has collapsed completely, taking the fireplace with it, and the roof is practically gone. It is possible to visit the location, and many paranormal investigators have done so over the years. The BBC even did an episode on the house for their series, uh, Northern Ireland's Greatest Haunts. I'd like to visit the property myself someday to see if I can experience the eerie atmosphere that pretty much everybody reports. It's a case that I hadn't heard of, but I'm I'm really glad I got to research it and I hope you enjoyed it too. Hey, welcome back. That was Placebo's cover of the Cape Bush song, Running Up That Hill. I actually first heard that in the early 2000s. It was on the TV show, The OC. Um, it was like the perfect soundtrack to Ryan's meltdown following Marissa's death. And if you're an OC fan, you know what I'm talking about. If not, I'm talking absolute nonsense. Um, anyway, now that we're in a darker sort of mood, it's time for this week's bookshelf. Um, so recently I've been reading a lot, like maybe a couple of books per week. So I've had lots to choose from, but one that really has stood out lately is episode 13 by Craig DeLuey. It's one of the best horror books I've read in a while. It has everything you could want, a central mystery in a haunted house, characters who don't get along and cameras filming every little thing. Here's a short synopsis I wrote. Episode 13 is about a team of ghost hunters from the hit reality TV show Fade to Black. For the 13th episode of their debut season, they want to do something extraordinary, something that will guarantee the network gives them a second season. They decide to investigate a house that belonged to the Paranormal Research Foundation called Foundation House, a place where scientists experimented on people. These five scientists were members of the human potential movement, which believed that humans only used a fraction of their brain power. All five scientists disappeared in 1972, never to be heard from again. 
So husband and wife team Matt and Claire Kirkland lead the investigation, along with camera guy Jake, tech wizard Kevin and actress Jessica. Claire has a PhD in physics from Virginia Tech and is the sceptic of the group. She does everything in her power to disprove paranormal phenomena, but she meets her match at Foundation House. Uh, I love this book so much. It was like easy to read um, highly entertaining. And it even freaked me out once or twice, which is really difficult to do with me. Uh, it's kind of like if you crossed House of Leaves. I think I covered that on episode one with Haunting of Hill House and throw in kind of like a dash of Ghost Adventures without the Zach Baggins bit, I guess. Um, it's an epistolary novel, so it's written mainly in the form of journal entries and episode transcripts, but there's also emails and some newspaper articles in there too. It was perfect for the Halloween season, and I'm definitely adding it to my reread pile for the future. Um, and I'll read, I'll definitely get time to read one excerpt for you now, and we'll see how we go with the second one. The first one is short, so. So this is the Fade to Black blog by Matt Kirkland. So this is like one of the epistolary forms that the novel is written in. So this is Matt Kirkland. He's the lead investigator. Jackpot, we got it, gang. Foundation house for Lucky 13. During my five plus years as a paranormal investigator, I've always wanted to check out this house. In our little community, it's pretty infamous. Not for the haunting, which is honestly kind of run of the mill, but for the general weirdness. This place has some wild lore connected to it. Seriously, I could write a book. Nobody's ever been given access until now. A real stroke of luck. You heard me right. It's never been investigated. Ghost hunters eat your heart out. Built in 1920 near the historic Bell Green Plantation, a few miles from the little Virginia town of Denton, the mansion is a throwback to antebellum architecture. Picture large wraparound porches where you sip mint juleps while you enjoy the sunset. The house was built by Jared Wright, heir to a sugar company. When he died in the 60s, it stood in test date until the Paranormal Research Foundation, or PRF, bought it and moved in. That's when Wright Mansion became Foundation House. In 1972, while the Republicans renominated Nixon for president, the last American troops left Vietnam, and Bobby Fischer became the first American world chess champion. Five paranormal all-stars lived in this house and recruited dozens of people to take part in weird experiments. Their motto was, where there is smoke, there is fire. They believe paranormal powers reside in all of us, dormant in our DNA. They were members of the human potential movement, which believed humanity only used a fraction of its potential intelligence and ability. They wanted to identify paranormal abilities in people, discover the underlying mechanisms and learn how to train and develop them to make a utopia. In short, they were wacky as hell, but see it through their eyes for a minute. They envisioned a world where people could talk to the dead, could read minds, control objects remotely, travel out of their bodies, know the future. And they weren't stereotypical hippies. They were some of the leading scientists of their time. And two of them, Sean Roebuck and Don Chapman, were certified geniuses. As for the researchers, we know they went missing in 1972. The police files themselves vanished in the election day flood of 1985. So what are we investigating exactly? Over the years, neighbours driving past the property reported seeing the ghostly apparition of an abnormally tall woman appearing in the upstairs window. Local kids using it as a party hangout said they heard invisible feet stomping on the grand staircase, experienced cold spots and witnessed strange flashing lights in the woods around it. In episode 13, Fade to Black's crack team will spend 72 hours at Foundation House. 
According to the owner, nobody's lived in it since 1972, so we are hoping to find out more or less how the scientists left it. So that kind of gives you some idea um, of the setup there. And I'll read a little bit of the next bit because it's pretty freaky. It's also towards the start of the novel. And this is an interview, a pre-interview transcript between Jessica, who is one of the investigators, she's the actress, and Calvin Sparling, who was basically experimented on. Well, he was a volunteer, but he was experimented on in the 70s at Foundation House. Um, so it's, this is done like a, an interview transcript. So Jessica, can you describe the experiment? Sparling, the docs took me into a small room in the basement that they turned into a machine. Metal cylinders like columns stood against the walls, all wired together with thick cable. Something about introducing energy at different frequencies, they said. As for me, I sat on a chair in front of a table that was all shiny, made of stainless steel. On the other side, they'd put a freestanding mirror where I could look at myself. And that was it. Jessica. What was upsetting, though? It doesn't sound all that. Sparling. I ain't done yet. They turned the machine on. Jessica. Ah, okay. What happened then? Sparling. The first umpteen times over as many days, nothing at all. The last time, I sat down and got ready to be mightily bored staring at my own face. And then the room started to hum. Jessica. The machine made a lot of noise. Sparling. Not this time. I mean, yeah, they were loud, kind of a whirring white noise, but this was something else. The air itself seemed to hum, a pulsing I could feel as a vibrating knot in my chest. A sound so deep I barely heard it at first, but once I noticed it, it was all I could hear. The air was thick with it. Everything went fuzzy, vibrating. My eyeballs shook in their sockets, my teeth. I wanted to yell at the docks outside to stop the experiment and let me out. But I either couldn't talk or couldn't hear myself. Gravity crushed me into my chair. I could hardly breathe. Jessica, you were scared, Sparling. It, no shit, I was scared. Oh, Sparling, sorry about that. Anyways, all this was bad enough, but it wasn't the worst part. The worst was these feelings that came out of nowhere. I was scared shitless, yeah, but it was more than that. I don't even know what to call it. Dread, maybe. Animal terror. A feeling I was not only being stared at, but that something stood right behind me, drilling holes into the back of my head. Jessica. Okay. Sparling. Underneath it was this emptiness, a sense I didn't matter. Nothing mattered. Like I was a lab rat about to get injected with cancer, which is scary enough for the rat, but suddenly it realises, oh, I'm just a rat. All along I thought I was important, but there are giants who don't regard me as important at all. Jessica, that does sound terrible. Sparling, that's when the table liquefied. What? I'm just going to dispense with the with the name tags here. <laughs> the whole time I was staring at myself in the mirror, I saw my eyes bulging, my mouth open wide, a brownish yellow aura flaring around my body. I thought, if only the guy in the mirror would move, I could too. I could get out of here. But he just sat there, and that's when I didn't even recognise him as me anymore. Just some dumb, long-haired kid crying and pissing himself. Then he started to fall apart in the vibrations. He got even fuzzier, like he was breaking up into atoms. But a part of me knew, just knew, I was finally seeing him as he really was. The way the universe does, unfiltered by human eyes. I suddenly didn't want to him to move. I wanted him to stay put. I had a dead certainty he was going to walk on out of that mirror and it wouldn't be good. Um, there's another couple of pages. I'm going to leave it there. I mean, you should absolutely read this book. It's a great read. It's so easy to read. Very, very creepy. And the author has another 
well, he has a lot of other books, but one that seems kind of similar vein is The Children of Red Peak. So I think I'm going to read that as well. So that's episode 13 by Craig DeLuey. Um, and I actually think it would make a really good TV series or a film. So someone get on that, please. And just one last thing I want to mention before I close out is that my favorite paranormal podcast, Uncanny, with Danny Robbins, uh, the BBC for uh, podcast has now added a TV series to its repertoire. It's on BBC Two and hand to heart, it's the best show I've ever seen on the paranormal. No hysterics, no bullshit, just good interviews and investigating. I can't stand other ghost hunting shows, um, but this is more like a documentary and it's just as well put together as the podcast. Unfortunately, there's only three episodes at the moment, but I'm sure more are on the way. And if you have any interest at all in the supernatural, you really should experience uncanny for yourself. And that brings us to the end of this week's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did and that you'll come back for more next week. It'll be available as a podcast on Mixcloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts over the next couple of days. And please, please, please rate, review and subscribe. You can keep an eye on my Instagram page for updates. That's at the craft with Carol, C-A-R-O-L-E, at the craft with Carol. Thanks to Belfield FM for hosting me again. Um, I'll see you the same time next week. And until then, keep yourself cozy, creepy and inspired.